Please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 69. We'll read the first nine verses for our Old Testament reading before we go to our text in Acts 21. And um, this is rather fanciful. There's no way I could prove this, but Paul being a man of the word, his heart filled with the Old Testament scriptures, it would not surprise me if as he went through his arrest and his many trials, if these uh, words of the psalmist would have come to his heart, these words which um, look forward to the sufferings of the Lord Jesus, but also of all of his servants. So let's read Psalm 69, verses 1 through 9. To the choir master, according to lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let those who hope in you be let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 21. Continue the story of Paul's life with verses 17 to 39, picking up where we left off at the beginning of December. Acts 21, verses 17 to 39. When we had come to Jerusalem, The brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know 
that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Amen. You may be seated. you had lived in the time of the apostles, and you went to Jerusalem to see the temple, um, you would have encountered a truly magnificent place. Uh, The temple of Herod the Great was huge, it was beautiful, it was very impressive. Um, And not only did it tower above its surroundings... Um, but also its grounds sort of spread out over a very broad area. The outer walls uh, stretched about 1,500 feet north to south, about 1,000 feet east to west. Uh, But if you had gone there, you would not have had access to uh, the whole temple. Um, There was a 
very broad outer courtyard called the Court of the Gentiles where anyone could go, and there you would have been fine. But as you made your way inward uh, from whatever direction, you would eventually encounter a wall. Not very high, just about four feet. Um, But um, along that wall, you would have seen um, every so often uh, large stone signs, about two feet by three feet. They've actually... Uh, uncovered some of these, uh, well, they found one whole one and a fragment of another with an inscription carved into the stone that said, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and its enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Pretty serious. This is quoted in a couple of commentators, translated it. So this is how seriously uh, the Jewish people treated the sacredness of the temple. I want you to keep that mental picture in mind as you uh, visualize Paul's movements in this passage. As you think, what, what was Paul trying to accomplish by going into the temple and doing what he did? Um, what did the crowd think that he had done? And why were they so angry about it? Okay, so let's look at this passage in three parts this morning. First will be a gracious gesture, verses 17 to 26. Second will be a malicious misunderstanding, verses 27 to 30. And then third, an ironic rescue, verses 31 to 39. So a gracious gesture, a malicious misunderstanding, and an ironic rescue. All right, so remember that Paul is um, coming to Jerusalem at the end of his long journey from Greece back eastward uh, toward Jerusalem. And all along the way, people have been telling Paul under prophetic inspiration, you know, Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, chains and imprisonment are what you can expect there. Uh, Paul's going in with his eyes wide open, and remember what he said, I am ready not only to be imprisoned but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And now, verse 17, Paul finally arrives there. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Uh, In verse 18, uh, Paul has a meeting with all the elders, it says, led apparently by James. Now, this is not the Apostle James. He was uh, killed by Herod back in chapter 12. Uh, This here is James, the brother of Jesus, the... um, writer of the letter of James later in the New Testament, who seems at this point uh, to be the sort of elder statesman of the church in Jerusalem. Now, James and uh, the Jerusalem elders are very glad to hear about what God has been doing abroad through Paul's ministry. It says when they heard it, uh, they glorified God. Um, They're happy to see that the gospel is spreading among the Gentiles. It's a good thing from their point of view. Um, Very soon, though, the focus moves to a significant question mark hanging over Paul's visit. Um, So Paul's been working far afield in these churches that are primarily made up of Gentiles, and you can probably imagine the, the cultural gap that is only getting wider all the time between the churches on the mission fields beyond Jerusalem 
and the church here in Jerusalem where everything started. In Jerusalem, you primarily had Christians who came to faith in Jesus out of a Jewish upbringing. And so they had grown up with the ceremonies and the feasts and the rhythms and the the habits of the law of Moses. It was just part of the background of life for them. Now, when Gentiles first started becoming Christians, there were some people in Jerusalem who assumed, well, well now, if they're going to be Christians, well, then they need, to, they need to join us in all of these Old Testament practices. They need to do the same kinds of things. They need to circumcise their, their sons. They need to follow the food laws and so on. Um, the, but the church had already dealt with that question. That, that question is not in play here. That was what the Jerusalem Council back in Acts 15 was all about. And the answer was, no, Gentiles... Uh, who become Christians should not be forced to adopt all of those practices of the ceremonial law. They don't need to become Jews. They just need to become Christians. And James acknowledges this. He is referring to it in verse 25 when he talks about the letter that had been sent to the Gentiles. He said, that's not a question. We know the Gentiles don't have to keep these ceremonies. But just as the Gentiles weren't going to be forced to adopt those Jewish ceremonies when they became Christians... It's also pretty clear that, that Jewish Christians in this, uh, these first couple generations were not going to be forced uh, to stop all of those practices either. And so there were, there were some aspects of temple worship, some aspects of the Law of Moses that, that Christian Jews um, were still free to participate in to some degree. They were f- still free to avoid certain foods. Uh, They could still take certain religious vows and follow through on them according to the instructions in the law of Moses. The question then surrounding Paul's ministry was, what about the Jewish believers you've been working with abroad? Um, Some Christians in Jerusalem were were pretty wary of Paul. They want to know, Paul, have have you been teaching Jews to stop observing the law? telling them not to circumcise their children anymore, telling them not to walk according to our customs. That's how James puts it. He's not saying this is my concern. He's saying there are some other people who have this concern in the church who uh, be sensitive about this uh, area of concern. Now, uh, also notice this is people's perception. This is the rumor about Paul. But is it true? Is it true? Well, let's think about it. Um, Imagine a Jewish family... Uh, became Christians in, say, Ephesus. And they decided, you know, I, I don't think we really need to keep the Passover this year because it's been fulfilled in Jesus. You know, Imagine they, they started thinking, you know, I think it's okay if we start eating other kinds of meat. Um, I, don't, I don't think we actually need to circumcise our son, do we, Paul? Think about how Paul might have answered. I, I don't think that Paul would have objected at all. In fact, I think he would have seen that as a sign of maturity, that this family gets it. They understand that those ceremonies have been fulfilled in Christ, that they're passing away. But in Paul's ministry and in Paul's writings, you, also, you don't see him on some crusade to get uh, Jews to stop their Jewish practices as much as he is burdened. This is his real burden. His real burden is that Gentile Christians not be forced to start those practices. And that all of God's people not look at those practices as part of the way of salvation. Now, for himself, he could kind of take them or leave them. Um, And this is the approach he spells out in 1 Corinthians 9, where he says, 
Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And this is the famous place where he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. In other words, Paul knew that he was free in Christ not to observe those regulations and ceremonies of Moses. He didn't, he didn't have to. But he was also willing to do it freely if that would help people to hear and embrace the gospel, people coming from a Jewish background. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, he says, that I may share with them in its blessings. See, that's the thing about Christian liberty. In Christ, we are so free. We are so free, so confident in his perfect love and acceptance of us by grace alone, through faith alone, that that we don't have to feel threatened and defensive when an opportunity comes up where, where maybe it would be helpful for us not to exercise that freedom to its fullest extent, to, to maybe set aside our rights for a time, willingly, in love, because we, we love the person in front of us. We care about that person in front of us, and we don't want to be an obstacle to them knowing and trusting and embracing Jesus. Okay, so what Paul agrees to do in the following verses fits that pattern from 1 Corinthians 9 precisely. So James suggests, well, here's something you could do. Here's something you could do to show the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that you're not on some anti-Moses crusade. Um, What better way to demonstrate that than for you to participate in a public ceremony at the temple? Not because you have to, not because Christ requires this ceremony of you. It's just a way... Uh, for you to show the Jewish Christians in this city, I'm, I'm not your enemy. Uh, so James says, here's what I think could work. So th- we have these four guys in the church here um, who have made this particular type of vow. You know about this, Paul, and how it requires those certain ceremonies at the temple that everybody goes through when they take these kinds of vows. And, and what you could do, Paul, is you could go with them and take part publicly in that ceremony. I really think that would go a long way um, with some of these Uh, brothers in the church who have these concerns about you. And so Paul says, okay, sure, I can do that. And and we want to understand that Paul is not um, somehow going against his principles here. He's not doing something that he thinks is wrong. He's not compromising. You know, back in chapter 18, Paul himself, uh, there was this very short line you see in passing, but it becomes significant here. Paul, um, remember, uh, had taken a vow and Uh, Remember that reference where it says he cut his hair because of the vow that he had taken? That was a ceremony from the law of Moses. It's a a Jewish custom that he went through as as part of showing uh, his gratitude to God, something the Lord had done for him. And so here, Paul is simply doing publicly in Jerusalem what he's already done privately on his own. Only now he's doing it for this special purpose, to, to build goodwill and understanding with the Jerusalem church. And so this is a gracious gesture for Paul to go and do this. This is a good reminder for us uh, that the gospel does not require us to go out of our way to be offensive. Just look how willing Paul was to go out of his way 
to, to strengthen the bonds of fellowship with these Christians who were, who were suspicious of him. Um, and to do that by, by doing something that, frankly, he didn't have to do. He could have said, um, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. If your people won't accept me for who I am, then just forget about it. Don't need them anyway. And, and, and James uh, could have said, you know what, you're right, Paul. Uh, you do you, Paul. You just um, do what you think is best for you. And that is exactly the kind of uh, very self-centered advice that it gets peddled in popular culture these days. People eat it up because it's telling us what we want to hear, right? That you can just focus on yourself. You just focus on what you deserve. You just focus on your needs, your rights. You take care of yourself. How can you love others if you don't love yourself first? Those kinds of things. Of course, there's grains of truth. Grains. But the way that it is stated is often so much appealing to our flesh and our natural self-centeredness. See, that's not the gospel. It's not the gospel of Jesus who did what? Who took the form of a servant for us when he didn't have to. And it's not the gospel preached by Paul and lived out by Paul who said to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. You know, I think, especially when it comes to the culture wars, I think some Christians can, can pick up the bad habit of supposing that there's some virtue in just making ourselves odious to people with whom we differ. To have a combative uh, kind of fists in the air um, instinct <clears throat> as though it's somehow holier or more, more authentically Christian to, to buy into the rough and tumble rhetoric of just bluster and overstatement and things that just fan the flames but end up producing for all of the heat that comes from it, not very much light for ourselves or for non-Christians. See, Paul's gracious willingness to move in love towards people who were suspicious of him, who were naturally disposed to treat him as an enemy or at least a potential enemy, even by going out of his way to lay aside his rights and privileges to do what would make for a greater depth of trust and understanding. I think that gives us a different approach, a different model for what a a godly engagement in a tense public atmosphere can be like. At the very same time, however, I want to say this immediately as we go on to the next section. This passage also shows us very clearly the limits, the limits of accommodating the preferences and sensitivities of others. Some Christians tend to think if we can just placate our opponents enough, if we can just convince them that we're not actually a threat after all, if we can just show people how nice we can be, if we can just, and this is where it really starts to go wrong, if we can just show them that we're not really so different from them, well, then maybe we can win them to Christ that way. It's the kind of the opposite error from the one I mentioned earlier. So yes, we don't want to be spiteful, obnoxious Christians, but we also don't want to be spineless, obsequious Christians either, whose greatest wish in life is just that people would like us, approve of us, not be mad at us, 
for what we believe and whom we serve. And for all of the many and obvious reasons I could give for that principle, the one I want to give you from this passage is the pragmatic one that it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The foes of the gospel, as we are going to see here in Paul's story, are not so easily appeased. The great irony at the center of this passage is that it's in the very act of trying to show his respect for the law of Moses. That is the occasion where his enemies accuse him of the very opposite. So the Jews from Asia... Notice these, these are the same kinds of people who have been harassing and attacking Paul everywhere he goes on his missionary journeys. So these are Jews from Asia who are now in Jerusalem, who know all about Paul and the things he's been doing in those uh, cities of Asia Minor. So verse 27, they start stirring up the crowd against Paul. They're accusing him of bringing Gentiles past that four-foot wall. Pass that barrier with the signs about having only yourself to blame for your ensuing death. Now, it's completely false. Paul has not done that. Paul would not do that. But you see, the truth doesn't matter to these people. They've seen him walking around Jerusalem with his Gentile friends. They know his uh, reputation for associating with Gentiles abroad. And now they've seen him in the temple, and so they kind of put two and two together. And they assume... Well, he must have brought his Gentile friends into the temple because that's just the kind of guy he is. It's because it's what they want to believe. They willfully misconstrue what Paul is doing here. It's a misunderstanding, yes, but I think we could say it's a malicious misunderstanding, not an innocent one. They are predisposed to assume the worst about Paul because they hate what he stands for. And so here's the lesson, at least one lesson from this. No matter how kind you are, no matter how gracious you are, no matter how Christ-like you are, you are not, by that, going to quell the rage of the enemies of Christ. And if that's the case, at our very best, when we're simply trying to be gracious and Christ-like, then what a warning to us when we're tempted to go even further. Not just kindness, which is good, it's fruit of the Spirit, Compromise. So the temptation can be to make little concessions in our language and our emphasis and the things we decide to stay silent about. See, one concession always leads to another and another, another and another. It is never enough until we've lost what makes us Christians. Given up everything that makes us any different from the world around us. Love something that Matthew Henry says on this section. I think it's very practical. He envisions the Jerusalem church observing what's happening to Paul here and realizing, wow, you know, just, just continuing to respect the law of Moses is not going to guarantee that the rest of Judaism will respect and tolerate us. Matthew Henry says, they saw it was vain to think of pleasing men, to think, uh, they saw it was vain to think of pleasing men that would be pleased with nothing else but the rooting out of Christianity. I'm going to read that again because I said it wrong. They saw it was vain to think of pleasing men that would be pleased with nothing else but the rooting out of Christianity. 
And then listen to his conclusion here. This is important. Integrity and uprightness will be more likely to preserve us than sneaking compliances. Integrity and uprightness will be more likely to preserve us than sneaking compliances. You see what that means? That temptation to sneaking compliances with the world's demands is not theoretical. There are choices that will face some of you this year where you're going to have to decide, am I just going to go with the flow and do what everyone else is doing because that feels like the nicest, kindest, not to mention easiest and least costly thing to do? Or am I going to do what I know is right, even if it costs me something? You have to understand that no matter how much you compromise, it will never be enough to please Christ's enemies until there is nothing left of your Christianity. Stop going down that road before you start on it. Now, thankfully, as we'll see next time, that is not Paul's approach. Paul does not take the path of compromise or accommodation here um, in a way that would lead him to uh, put a damper on the gospel in some way. As sensitive as he was to the tender consciences of the Jerusalem church, he is equally bold and forthright in his testimony to the gospel when he gets the chance to speak to this crowd. Um, and the way that comes about is what we're calling here this, uh, this ironic rescue. Ironic because how is Paul rescued from the crowd? He's rescued from the crowd by getting arrested by the Romans. You wouldn't usually think of being arrested by uh, Roman uh, leaders being a, a good thing, but here it saves Paul from the um, mob execution. It's interesting to note here both the similarities and the differences between Paul's experience here in Jerusalem with the crowds and the Romans and Jesus's. Um, don't miss that in verse 36, the crowd calls out the same thing about Paul that they said to Pilate. When it, was Jesus, when it was Jesus in Roman's hand, Roman hands, and that is, away with him. Same words exactly in Luke 23. And yet in this case, uh, the outcome, of course, is quite different than with, with Jesus. Here, uh, the Roman soldiers end up protecting Paul, even carrying him up the stairs to you know, get away from the crowd. Now, protecting Paul is not their uh, primary intent at, at first. This, this tribune is mainly interested in stopping the, the riot, um, this public disturbance, uh, and he assumes at first actually that Paul is a real criminal. Um, he's surprised to find out that, that he's a Greek-speaking Roman citizen. Um, but you see, in, in God's providence, this was the plan all along. Yes, chains and imprisonment, that was part of the plan. That's what Paul was warned about. That's exactly what he's getting. But starting right away, look at what's happening. Those very chains become, in God's plan, an opportunity for Paul to preach the gospel all the more clearly in new settings to new people who would never have given him a hearing before, starting right here with this rioting Jerusalem crowd. And that's what we're going to see time after time through all of Paul's trials and all of the uh, high-flying leaders that he has the opportunity to preach the gospel to um, in the ensuing chapters. And so what we really want to see in all this chaos is 
really, when it comes down to it, the same fundamental grounding truth that has run all the way through the book of Acts from the very beginning, and all of the ups and downs and the victories and the trials, which is that Christ, the risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ, is on his throne. This is the book, ultimately, remember, of his acts. This arrest of Paul is just the latest of Christ's great acts, which he is using to accomplish his purposes. And even as his servant Paul finds himself, once again, as he has many times before, in peril of his life, he also finds himself, once again, as so many times before, protected and rescued by the Lord Jesus, now through the unlikely hands of the Roman soldiers. The Lord Jesus, who, when he was in Roman hands, did not escape. Instead, he willingly set aside his rights, his privileges, his self-interest. For Paul, for one, for the Jerusalem church, for the church abroad, for the church of all time, and for us. That's what the Lord Jesus did by going to the cross. And by taking those Roman nails in his hands and bearing our sins in our place so that we could be forgiven instead of condemned, so that we could be accepted instead of rejected, so that we could have new life instead of death, so we could live that life under his gracious and mighty protection and his loving and tender rule over us. So as we enter this new year, where all of the victories and all of the trials that lie ahead of you are yet to be encountered, here's what you need to know. That Christ is on his throne. The risen, ascended king And when you experience, like Paul, these fiery trials that you will no doubt encounter this year, you just don't know what they are yet, you need to know that those are not evidences that the Lord Jesus has neglected you or that he no longer cares. Rather, they are opportunities for him to show his power in your life, even in your weakness, as in Paul's in new ways, perhaps, like you've never known before, that you never would have chosen, perhaps, but that you wouldn't have come to know in any other way. You want to be reassured that he is with you. You can see that here. He is working in you. He is working through you to bring his good plans to pass, and he will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. Our great God, we are once again so thankful that the Lord Jesus doesn't change. He is the same yesterday in Paul's life and today in this new year full of all of its mysteries, we find ourselves staring down 
and forever. Long into the eternity to come that you've promised. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, when we feel weak, when we encounter those trials that are coming, the crosses that you're going to call us to bear, Lord, we ask that you would give us courage, you would give us hope in the loving, compassionate, almighty rule of our risen and ascended Lord Jesus. He cares for us from his heavenly throne until he comes again. And we do pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.